from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's media coordinator and sometimes podcast host. This episode is of the type where you, our listeners, get the chance to write in and ask the CER about all things European policy and international affairs and our experts will do their best to answer your questions. With me today, I have my colleagues Zach Myers, Luigi Scazzieri and Elisabetta Cornago, who are all senior research fellows at the CER, and Ian Bond, who is our foreign policy director. Today, we're going to cover a fair bit of ground, unpacking central bank digital currencies, examining the EU's muscle as a global defence player, considering how Western-Russian relations got so bad, and finding out where we are with some of the EU's key climate legislation. So Zach, let's begin with quite a specific question, which Nina from London has written in with. The question's about central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, which are something that lots of central banks are weighing up at the moment. So the clue's in the name, they are their money, which a central bank like the European Central Bank or the Bank of England can produce. But they're a digital currency, somewhat like cryptocurrency, although the difference is that while cryptocurrencies are also digital, they are privately issued and far, far more volatile in their value when compared to a central bank digital currency. But what Nina wanted to know, and I'm sure lots of us would, how exactly do central bank digital currencies work for consumers? Would you have, say, the equivalent, the digital equivalent of a 10 euro note? And then what would you need to do to be able to, to set up that account or, or spend it? Thanks, Rosie. That is a really good question. Um, most people make electronic payments all the time today in lots of different ways. So by card, or you can use your phone to, to use Apple or Google Pay. Uh, some people use QR codes. Um, and of course, you know, you just type in your card details or use PayPal when you shop online. So very few people actually rely on cash um, at the moment, and the proportion who do is decreasing. So a CBDC doesn't necessarily need to look much different to how people pay electronically today. And that's because the only fundamental difference um, between CBDCs and today's electronic payments is that CBDCs would be money, as you say, Rosie, that would be backed by the central bank. And in that sense, it'd be like a digital equivalent to cash. Whereas when you make an electronic payment today, you're using money in a bank account that's provided by a private bank. Now, for most consumers, this difference is completely academic. So most people don't live in fear that the banks that they have accounts with are going to go bust and they're going to lose all their money. And even if um, they did, uh, we, you know, we have um, deposit insurance in place so that consumers are protected. So that is kind of the, the basis for why this is a really good question about how CBDCs would be actually different to, to card payments today. And that very much depends on how they're designed. And most central banks are still thinking 
deeply about these design questions and haven't come to any conclusions. So the most fundamental question is whether you would base a CBDC around having an account or whether you would attach it to a particular device or a token. Um, if it's based around an account, you'd have a separate digital euro account for money that you wanted to use to make digital euro payments. And then you'd be able to move money in and out of that account um, to and from your normal private bank account. Again, that doesn't look like it would be very different to payments and, and accounts today. It would be a, a separate account backed by the ECB. If it was based around a token, then that is quite a bit more interesting. So you'd have digital euros that could have unique IDs in the same way that banknotes have serial numbers today. And you could use those to transfer money between people and it would be much more like an electronic version of cash. This could have some advantages in terms of user privacy, but it could also be less convenient and harder to get your money back. Because just like if you lose your wallet, if you lose the tokens um, that represent each digital euro, then it's quite difficult to get it back. Mm. Um, another design question is whether the system should be centralised or decentralised. Okay, and what do you mean by that? So most electronic payment systems that we have today are centralised. So for example, when you pay with Visa or a MasterCard, the transactions get reported to the banks and they go through one central clearing and settlement system. An example of a decentralised payment system is when you pay with cash, because money changes hands and only the buyer or seller need to know, unless the amount is particularly high and needs to be reported to kind of money laundering authorities. Mm. There's not really anyone else who needs to be involved or, or know about that payment. So it's, it's a lot more private. Got you. Um, like cryptocurrencies. Yeah, exactly. And so blockchain technology is what enables cryptocurrency transactions to take place on a kind of peer-to-peer basis without it being reported to one central place. And you could allow a similar system to be in place for electronic CBDC payments if you wanted it to follow this type of token decentralized framework. Now, this is mostly an IT issue, so it doesn't necessarily mean that as a consumer, you need to understand how blockchain works, but it would change the user experience because it could mean, for example, that you'd be able to make electronic payments, even if communications networks go offline or banks are uncontactable. So you can see why central banks think, oh, you know, this might be a really good sort of system to have in place if there's some sort of major cybersecurity threat. There's a couple of other design questions that are worth noting. Uh, one is how involved existing banks would be in CBDCs. So it's quite likely the system, the underlying framework of CBDCs would be run by the central bank, but you would get your CBDC through a private financial institution. And the reason for that is central banks have accounts or they run accounts for private banks, but they're not used to providing millions and millions of accounts and dealing with consumer complaints and onboarding and all of that. Um, sort of complicated, quite expensive process. Um, and also if you allow private banks to get involved in um, handling those sort of issues for consumers, then you can allow the system to become more innovative and a bit more diverse. Uh, but again, then you'd be looking at solutions that could end up being quite similar to electronic payments today. Mm. Um, but in theory, you could go the other direction and have the central bank providing accounts directly to consumers. Uh, not very likely in Europe, but who knows, it could be possible elsewhere in the world. And, and finally, um, there's a question about how users would access CBDCs and how you'd physically make a payment. And there are all sorts of options that are available. You could use a payment card, you could use a mobile phone app, you could have some sort of entirely new device, or especially if you have private banks involved, you could have kind of a combination of all of the above. Uh, this is obviously kind of a big question for retailers 
because um, they are not going to be very keen on investing in new types of equipment. And so they would presumably be quite keen on solutions that already work with existing card terminals, for example. Um, but again, that means that you get a solution that's fairly similar to what's in the market already. So I guess all of these unknown questions show that we don't really know what a digital euro would look like in practice. It could be kind of quite similar to what we already know and, and use, or it could be radically different. And then finally, what is your overall take on how um, central bank digital currencies may fit into the digital payments landscape in, in Europe or just generally? Yeah, so I think they have some innovative potential, um, but I think it's important that we recognise the market is innovating even without CBDCs. So if you think about payment technologies available today, there's quite a few that didn't exist even a few years ago. Things like you know mobile phone payments and QR codes, for example. So it's not clear to me that CBDCs would necessarily add much new to the payments landscape that isn't already there. And um, you know whether they would be more attractive to, to consumers than uh, different payment options that already exist or will probably emerge in the next few years. And, and secondly, the solutions that are likely to be the most innovative and add something new to the market are pretty adventurous. And we've mentioned blockchain already. And you know, that could be really cool because it would be great to have a private way to make person-to-person uh, -person transactions that um, couldn't be easily traced and wouldn't rely on uh, the internet and banks being available. But sure. adopting that sort of technology would be pretty novel for a central bank, and they're not known to be the most adventurous institutions. So I think it's most likely CBDCs will look similar to what's already here in the market today, uh, you know, with features like app-based person-to-person payments. Um, but you can already get those on digital banks apps today. Um, and so I'm not entirely convinced that uh, the sort of CBDCs that are most likely to get rolled out are going to be radically different. Okay, thank you very much, Zach. That was, that was really helpful. So while we're talking about spending, let's look at European defence and the resources that Europe allocates um, for this purpose. So since Russia invaded Ukraine in February, we've seen big defence spending increases announced across Europe with member states together earmarking an additional 200 billion euros for defence, of which Germany's 100 billion euro pledge um, represents half. So Luigi, let me turn to you now. Um, Paul from Berlin wanted to know about the effectiveness of European defence spending when you compare it to China, Russia and the USA, for example. So he cited an article by The Economist, which we will include in our in our show notes, um, which compared China and the USA's defence budgets for 2020. So in this article, on the face of it, China's spending looked to be half of the USA's. But when you took differing operational and equipment costs and wage differences and local prices into account and then adjusted the budget total in terms of real purchasing power, China's defence spending actually jumped to be two-thirds of the USA's. So I suppose we could ask several questions here. Um, let's start with, generally, how does Europe sit as a global defence actor when compared to China, Russia and the US? 
And then how big a difference might these spending increases make? Well, thank you, Rosie. Uh, really, really interesting question. Um, and maybe if we just start from the numbers. So EU countries right now spend around $225 billion on, on defence every year. In comparison, the US budget is around uh, $800 billion per year. So the US number uh, is obviously uh, much, much larger uh, than, the, than the European number. But actually, the EU number is not that small uh, compared to those of other big countries. So China spends around $250 billion, which is roughly the same as the EU. And Russia only spends around $60 billion, which is much less than the EU and about the same as the UK. And of course, you, know, you should add the $60 billion of UK defence spending to EU defence spending to get an idea of, of kind of broad European defence spending overall. But at the same time, the problem is that, uh, as you hinted at in your question, I'm not sure how much sense such comparisons really make because China, Russia and the US have a single set of military forces, the EU does not. Uh, and a lot of the spending as a result goes towards maintaining all different national command structures, logistics systems, maintenance systems, different types of equipment and so on. And not only that, but actually Europe doesn't have a, an integrated research development and procurement system for military equipment like all those uh, individual countries do. And all this results in fragmentation. And just to give you an idea of how little cooperation actually takes place, we know that last year joint defence procurement projects, so member states working together to procure kit in the EU, only made up uh, around uh, 10 11%. Of, uh, of total procurement spending. So this uh, you know, has attracted a lot of political attention, especially after Russia's uh, latest invasion of Ukraine, with EU leaders drawing attention to the problem. So for example, we had foreign policy uh, chief Josep Borrell pointing out that EU countries produce uh, 12 types of, of so-called main battle tanks, whereas the US only has one. Um, and all this duplication uh, and fragmentation means that European countries just don't get the same level of capability in real terms from their spending than the US, China, or Russia get from theirs. So all this brings me to the, um, to the recent defense spending increases announced after the start of the conflict. Now, these clearly are significant in terms of headline numbers. They actually have to be implemented to make a difference. And I see several challenges on the horizon. Right. What sort of challenges? First of all, there's the issue of political pressure to spend on uh, the money on other things. Uh, meaning that some countries might not actually manage to reach the level of spending that they have promised to do due to you know, pressure to spend more on health, to cope with the cost of living crisis, rising inflation, higher energy prices. That's going to be a challenge, especially in countries that don't feel under direct threat. So those in Western Europe, mainly. Second, the value of the increase in, in spending in real terms might be eaten away by inflation if it stays high. The third issue is that much of this extra spending is actually going to go towards plugging gaps. The European Commission identified um, what it called a spending gap, a defence spending gap of around 160 billion euros that has accumulated since the very widespread defence cuts uh, that took place after 2008. So that figure of 160 billion is the cumulative underinvestment across the EU since 2008 compared to a scenario where there had been no spending cuts. And to my mind, the, the final question mark over this extra spending in Europe is also how much of it is going to be collaborative so that European countries can actually overcome the issue of having too many different types of equipment and all this uh, fragmentation that that leads to. 
And here the challenge is uh, political. It's uh, for member states to essentially, or enough member states to come together and agree on common specifications for a given project, a work share between their uh, often competing national industries and so on. And uh, the commission is trying to incentivize uh, cooperation. Of course, we already have the, the European Defense Fund to, uh, to try and foster joint uh, research. But now the commission also wants to look into providing financial sweeteners that can encourage groups of member states to work together in actually developing and even jointly owning military equipment. But we're going to have to just wait and see to judge whether these schemes are actually going to make much of a difference to the overall picture. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Thank you. And then do you think that, um, let's say global, yeah, global defence spending statistics ought to be you know, commonly and uniformly adjusted for um, how much bang you can actually get for your buck in, in local terms? I mean, to be brief about it, yes, I think that would be a very good idea. I have no, I'm not sure how difficult it is to actually do in accounting terms, mm -hmm. but clearly the cost of paying military personnel and paying the scientists and the workers that do the research and that produce military equipment varies so much uh, across countries that a comparison needs to take it into account. It's just going to be much more useful. And uh, yeah, that means essentially using figures that are adjusted on a purchasing power parity basis. Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant. And then if we look at the ongoing war in Ukraine, last week, Ukraine confirmed that the eastern city of Lysychansk had, um, had fallen to Russian forces. So Putin had already declared the Ukrainian Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Um, and I should say that Lysychansk is in Luhansk. Um, he declared them as independent of Ukraine. And we know that it's in his ambitions to seize the whole of the, the Donbass region more broadly. Um, Koichi from Japan asked, to what extent will the EU support Ukraine in this difficult situation caused by Russian control of parts of the east of the country? Again, yeah, thank you. And it's a very, very interesting question. I'll just start perhaps by saying that, yes, of course, Putin wants to seize the Donbass. He also wants to do much more than that. His, uh, his short-term aim is to keep hold of the Ukrainian territory he has, take, uh, take even more in the east and in the south of the country. And of course, the overall aim remains that of, uh, of subjugating the whole of Ukraine in, in one way or the other. And so far, the EU has done quite a lot to support Ukraine in resisting uh, Russia's aggression. So we've had uh, the sanctions that are going to constrain Russia's ability to sustain the war. At least that's what they're designed to do and undermine Russia's economy in the long term. Uh, the EU and its member states have also provided Ukraine with, um, with military support, with the EU actually providing $2 billion, uh, from its own European peace facility, which is a, a European uh, fund. So the European contribution to supporting Ukraine militarily is not as substantial as that as the US, uh, but it's still significant. At the same time, the European Union has channeled uh, financial assistance to Ukraine, I think around $4 billion, uh, so far, is, uh, is the figure that the EU has put forward. And there's also work going on on an additional package worth 9 billion euros and discussions over how to fund reconstruction efforts in Ukraine and whether it might be possible to do so by using assets that belong to, uh, to Russia. So I think EU support for Ukraine so far has been substantial, perhaps not so much as it could have been, but I would still call it substantial. But I'm much less sure of what lies ahead. When it comes to sanctions, it was quite challenging for member states to agree on the sixth package of sanctions on oil. And that, I think, showed that we may well be near the limit of what is uh, currently politically possible in terms of, uh, of increasing sanctions. 
when it comes to military support, there are also going to be challenges in the sense that military support could be constrained by, by the fact that the equipment that European countries are giving to Ukraine is starting to run low. Um, European armed forces were not really characterized by their abundance of kit prior to the conflict, and they have been in many cases burning through it by, by giving it to Ukraine at a very high rate. And at the same time, the rate at which new equipment is being produced is slow. So there might be challenges when it comes to that. And regarding economic support, you know, going back to my answer to, to the previous question, there, there's an issue about competing demands here. And I think the reality is that Europe is entering a much more troubled economic situation with higher inflation, higher energy prices, and these are going to be big political issues. And um, if they're faced with having to choose, I think politicians are, are much likely to prioritize spending domestically over spending to, to help Ukraine. We can, we can perhaps see some of the first signs of, uh, of that fatigue in the discussion about this 9 billion package of financial support, which has been finalized in the sense that much of it, if not all of it, seems to be uh, in, in the form of loans. And, and the notion of taking on any collective debt to, to finance Ukraine's reconstruction seems to have been flatly uh, rejected. So I think if we take a step back, we can see uh, that there's a risk that European military and financial support for Ukraine may not be as generous as, as Ukraine uh, would want going ahead. And of course, this is exactly what, uh, what Putin is counting on. Mm-hmm. Although I, I would note that ultimately what the US does in relation to the war will matter much more than what Europe does, uh, particularly in uh, in military terms. Okay, thank you very much, Luigi. Um, Ian, I'll turn to you now with a big question about how things got so bad with Russia. Um, when you look at the end of the Cold War uh, and the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, and how this brought hope and commitments including on the part of the former Soviet Union and then Russia, to adhere to and respect a values-based European and Euro-Atlantic security order. This is a lot to cover in a short podcast, but, um, but we can try our best. So let's recap the key pillars of European and Euro-Atlantic security in the 90s. So we have NATO, which had been established in 1949. The Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which grew out of the 1975 Helsinki Final Act and provided a framework for managing the end of the Cold War, and the Maastricht Treaty of 92-93, which paved the way for a common foreign and security policy for the EU. Now, we know that Russia never joined NATO or the EU, but it is a member of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And like other post-Soviet countries, it committed itself to democracy, peace and unity in Europe, settling disputes by peaceful means and defending, quote, democratic institutions against activities which violate the independence, sovereign equality or territorial integrity of the participating states. But Vladimir Putin's argument now is that the West broke its side of the bargain by enlarging the EU and NATO. So Russia deems itself to simply be defending itself and its interests by undertaking this assault on Ukraine. So there's some of the context. Now to the question, which is from Charles Crawford in the UK. He asked, how far, if at all, 
do you think Russia can reasonably feel humiliated or cheated as such by the new security and economic arrangements that emerged in Europe following the end of the Cold War and the breakup of the Soviet Union? Well, thanks very much, Rosie, and thanks very much, Charles. Um, I mean, full disclosure, Charles was my boss in the British Embassy in Moscow in the mid-1990s. So he and I saw many of the, the relevant events at that time unrolling before our very eyes. And you could write a book about um, why things turned out the way they did and whose fault it was. And in fact, quite a few people have written such books. But here is my less than book length answer, which is that the, the narrative of humiliation is one that Putin and those around him in the Russian leadership have chosen for themselves. It wasn't an inevitable outcome of Western actions. Uh, in fact, in those early post-Cold War years, the West made enormous efforts to try to give Russia a higher status internationally than its post-Soviet condition really justified. So despite the fact that its economy was a basket case, it became a member of the, the G8 group of leading industrial countries. I mean, by no stretch of the imagination was 1990s Russia a leading industrial country, but it became part of that group. It was invited to join the major Western powers in the so-called contact group, trying to bring peace to former Yugoslavia. And actually, I could say it played quite a constructive role in that. And although it wasn't invited to apply for NATO membership, it was given a special relationship with NATO through the NATO-Russia Founding Act. I mean, arguably more influence than any other third country had with, with NATO at the time. And it signed a partnership and cooperation agreement with the EU, which gave it various trade benefits. And it joined the Council of Europe, uh, the, the, the main European human rights organization, even though its human rights record was still quite poor. So it got quite a lot in that early post-Cold War period. But what nobody could do or nobody was prepared to do was to give Russia the kind of sphere of influence that the Soviet Union had had in Central and Eastern Europe. And that's because no, no Western country could impose the kind of limits on the foreign policies of now independent states in Central and Eastern Europe that Russia wanted them to, to impose. And then so to ask Charles's follow-up question, did, let's say, key Western capitals get it wrong in terms of their perspectives or drafting the arrangements or in bringing Russia into the fold? Or um, has Russia itself been unable to adapt or a combination of both? What do you think? Yeah, so I think the West made some mistakes at the very beginning. Um, so when the, the Soviet Union broke up at the end of 1991, the West could have done more to help Democrats in Russia. And there were a lot of them around at that time. Uh, and in particular, I, I would single out two areas where I think we didn't do enough. So one was in terms of helping Russia's Democrats to reduce the role of the former KGB and its officers like Putin, um, because they were allowed to move from you know, the KGB, a pretty brutal organization, into positions of influence in, in Russia. Uh, that was problematic, and it became more problematic over time. And secondly, I think the West could have done more to help Russia establish the rule of law, 
rather than helping Russian oligarchs launder their money in the West. And that's a process that began really in the, in the 1990s, and we got that quite badly wrong. But fundamentally, we are where we are today because of the choices that Russian leaders have made since there. Basically, you get a choice over the, the sort of history that you tell yourself is your history. And Russia could have chosen to say, and it would have been justified in some respects to say, that its people were the heroes who had thrown off the yoke of Soviet totalitarianism after the 1991 coup when Soviet hardliners tried to roll back the, the kind of democratic reforms that were coming in in the Soviet Union. So they could have said, you know, our people were the heroes who overthrew the Soviet dictatorship. And now we want to become a normal European democracy. And we recognize that we have some bridges to build with our neighbors who suffered under the Soviet dictatorship for the last 50 years. And that would have been a bit like West Germany after the Second World War. But instead, particularly after Putin came into power, Russia chose, or the Russian authorities chose to blame the collapse of the USSR on the evil, devious West, and then to try to reassert control over parts of the old empire, as it were. And I, I guess what I would say, and I know that Charles is a keen football fan, so I think he'll, he'll recognize this, but I, I would say that basically... The, the Russian leadership under Putin has made a choice that it is happy to be the Millwall of international relations. So Millwall are famous, Millwall supporters are famous for their chant, nobody likes us, we don't care. Um, and that's been Putin's approach to the rest of the world since he came to power. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Ian. And, um, and I'm glad that a, um, a football reference as a big Tottenham fan, could make its way into a CER podcast. But um, but on a serious note, yeah, that was that was a very interesting answer. Um, finally, Elisabetta, let's check in on where the EU stands in getting its key climate policies over the line. So if we look at the Fit for 55 package, which it introduced a year ago, um, this is the set of policies designed to cut EU emissions by 55% from 1990 levels by 2030. One of the proposals in this package is a carbon border adjustment mechanism, or CBAM, which would impose a carbon levy on imports to the EU. Adrienne from Paris asked, what is the CBAM status at the moment? Thank you, Rosie, and thank you, Adrienne, for your question. Um, Maybe just as a reminder, CBAM or uh, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism is a, a mechanism indeed, uh, whereby imports into the EU of some key goods such as iron and steel are going to be uh, subject to the payment of a carbon price that is aligned with the one that European domestic heavy industry pays under the EU emissions trading scheme. So this is meant to level the playing field between the carbon price that heavy industry pays in the EU and outside. So to avoid uh, what is called carbon leakage, which is what happens if heavy industry subject to carbon prices decides to offshore its carbon intensive production. Now, CBA marks a shift uh, in the way in which uh, industrial competitiveness is preserved. Today, heavy industry in the EU is largely exempt from paying a carbon price uh, as it obtains free permits to emit. But why? 
the rationale is that paying a carbon price would put EU industry at a disadvantage relative to foreign industry that is not subject to a carbon price high enough or any carbon price at all. Uh, so by implementing CBAM, we would shift to a situation in which instead both domestic and foreign industry are made to pay the same carbon price, removing the free allocation of emissions permits, uh, which are also called allowances. So, you know, after this sort of prologue to, to answer Adrian's question, um, where we stand is uh, the point in which both the European Parliament and the Council have approved their position on CBAM, as well as other files related to carbon pricing in the EU. Uh, and so starting this week, uh, the so-called trilogues will start, meaning uh, the negotiations between the Commission, Parliament and Council should uh, find a common position on CBAM uh, that will then become law. I think it's interesting then at this point uh, to compare the positions of these three institutions and highlight some areas of convergence and, and disagreement. I think in general, it's fair to say that Parliament uh, had a more ambitious position, uh, whereas Council is roughly backing the line proposed by the Commission or being somewhat more cautious. Mm -hmm. um, so then what were the main differences in stance between the, the institutions? So first of all, uh, when it comes to uh, CBAM kicking in, uh, the Commission suggested a 10-year phase-in period from 2026 to 2035, during which uh, free emissions allowances would be gradually phased out. And this means that only in 2035 uh, would domestic heavy industry be subject to the full carbon price, as CBAM would then uh, be phased in. Parliament suggested a more ambitious timeline with 2032 as deadline, and Council essentially backs the timeline proposed by the Commission, but favours a slower reduction in free allowances at the beginning and then an acceleration uh, towards the end of these 10 years. Um, another difference is about the scope of CBAM. Now, the Commission initially proposed it would cover steel, cement, aluminium, electricity and fertilisers. Uh, Council agrees, uh, whereas Parliament suggested including additional sectors, such as polymers and organic chemicals. Um, and another difference is that Parliament suggested CBAM uh, considers uh, indirect emissions as well as direct emissions uh, when accounting for the carbon footprint of imported goods, meaning that um, it would also be accounting for emissions from the energy used in the manufacturing process. Uh, but the Commission and Council only suggested to consider direct emissions to begin with, at least. Um, third, uh, what to do with CBAM revenues? Well, the, the Commission suggested that revenues from CBAM flow into the EU budget. Council broadly agrees there. Uh, Parliament tried to include provisions so that revenues would also be used to help uh, the poorest trading partner countries in their decarbonization efforts uh, of industry, since they would be somewhat burdened by, by CBAM. And, and, you know, I just picked three of, of the main points where positions differ. So as you can see, there will be plenty of ground to cover during negotiations in the next few months. Thanks, Elisabetta. Um, let's see what happens during the talks then. And last week, we saw the European Parliament approve a law which designates nuclear energy and natural gas as transitional activities in the EU taxonomy on sustainable investments. We've spoken about the taxonomy before. It's a classification system denoting what can and can't be described as an activity that contributes to the green transition, and in the case of nuclear and gas, what is deemed to be helpful during the transition. It's obviously quite controversial that nuclear and gas have actually made it into the taxonomy, even though there is a difference between sustainable activities and transitional activities. 
which we've explained in a previous Ask the CER episode. I think it's episode three. We'll, we'll put it in our show notes. But for the law on nuclear and gas not to have passed in the European Parliament last week, 353 MEPs would have needed to have rejected it when only 278 in actual fact did. So Paul from Brussels, a regular listener, um, wrote in a bit confused about what had happened. He asked what went on in the last few weeks in the European Parliament in order to get the taxonomy proposal approved when previous discussions led many to believe that the proposal was dead. And what does the vote mean for the future of the taxonomy? Indeed, uh, there has been quite some backlash against this decision in the past few months. Um, Several environment ministers, even uh, from from multiple member states, such as Austria and Luxembourg, had also criticized the taxonomy before. Uh, But while it appeared that uh, it would be uh, difficult to reach a majority against uh, the decision on gas and nuclear in council, uh, it was more difficult to to think about what parliament's position would eventually be. and so a few weeks ago, uh, what we saw was that the, the Environment Committee of the European Parliament rejected it. And mm-hmm. that's perhaps, I think, where Paul thought the taxonomy was at risk. But uh, committee votes may not always really be reflected in votes in the plenary of the parliament. And uh, what we saw last week is that the parliament in its entirety uh, decided to reverse what the committee had voted for and instead went ahead with labeling uh, nuclear and gas as transitional activities within the taxonomy. So what does this mean uh, for the future of of the taxonomy, for the future of this classification tool? I uh, personally think that this decision was a missed opportunity because I think it's really not an overstatement at this stage to say that the world has changed essentially since the commission tabled this proposal on nuclear and gas at the very end of last year. Mm -hmm. But the taxonomy in a way as it stands today does not really reflect that, right? So if you think about gas, uh, gas prices were already on the rise uh, at the end of 2021 uh, due to you know economic recovery picking up. But then in February, Russia started war on Ukraine, and this has further pushed up gas prices. And it has really made it clear that Europe can no longer rely on its largest gas supplier and, and supplier of, of cheapest gas, which is precisely Russia. So in this context, I think it's increasingly clear that the era of cheap gas is essentially over, which makes gas much less appealing as a transitional energy source. And I doubt that labeling it as such can change the fundamental economics of gas. And and nuclear um, is also not exactly having a field day. Uh, For example, France is facing unplanned maintenance uh, on on much of its nuclear fleet, uh, which is putting its power supply at risk and, and making electricity prices skyrocket. Nuclear energy investments are among the priciest in energy generation and virtually impossible without public subsidies. So There again, I think the the economics of nuclear energy and the timelines and subsidies necessary to pull off such investments are quite tricky. So can a taxonomy label change that? I I am not sure. Maybe to conclude on the future of the taxonomy, uh, I think sometimes we talk about the Brussels effect, which is what happens when the EU successfully manages to export its regulatory standards to the rest of the world, uh, which makes it a sort of regulation avant-garde, if you wish. Mm -hmm. But... um, I think it's going to be difficult, right, to explain this nuclear and gas decision outside Europe. I mean, it's it's been difficult enough uh, within Europe. Gas is a fossil fuel. How can it be a transition activity, particularly in today's energy market? 
Um, nuclear does not generate carbon emissions, but it does cause nuclear waste. So how can it be put in the same bucket as gas? These are the types of questions that we, we see and, and hear from observers outside Europe. So the reason behind uh, coupling, ultimately, these two energy sources in the same bucket for this regulatory decision has been a political compromise, but the result is essentially confusion. Uh, and I think this is going to make it an unpopular sell outside Europe, just as uh, inside. Thanks, Elisabetta. And thanks as well to Zach, Luigi and Ian for joining me in this episode of Ask the CER. Do keep your questions coming in and we hope to see you next time. This has been the CER podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.